After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then we all say, Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So today we are going to be talking in Luke chapter 5, but we're going to be talking about this very, very important meal um, in the gospel of Luke. I'll go back and just get you reacquainted with the realia of food and drink. We're, tra- we're traveling through this gospel of Luke, and we're pausing every time we see food and drink um, mentioned. And that is because realia is a simple, everyday object used as a teaching tool. So here we have in Luke chapter 5, we have one of the parties in, Luke, in, in Luke's gospel. We're going to see this over and over. So you're actually going to hear this sermon or a sermon like this preached multiple times throughout the year because Luke thought it was important enough to put similar stories in his gospel so that we would get it. And this is the theme is that there is a great feast. Think about your favorite food. Think about your favorite party. Think about the room in which you had the most fun. Where were you? Who was there? What did you consume? Why did you smile? Why did you dance? Why did you enjoy the food? Was it the company? Was it your taste buds? Was it a memory? Was it the laughter? I'm not real sure. Um, I love my mother's biscuits. I don't know why. That's just how it is. You may not like them. I don't care. I do. So much so that it's not just me who loves my mother's biscuits, but now my kids love Grand's biscuits. So when she cooks, that's that's what we request. But they've turned into something more than nutrition. Even though Southern biscuits, there's probably very little nutritional value. But they've come into a thing of their own. It's more than just a meal and sustenance. Sure, there's the rolling pin, and yes, there is the flour, and there's the dough bowl, and the little sifter. All of those things are in place, but something else is there because food really matters. At this point, it's become a part of our family. Food matters. And meals matters. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see that these meals have tons of significance. They are literally dripping with significance. Food connects people. All throughout the world, right now, at Sunday dinner, this meal, this idea of simple food and drink that we consume around a table, it gathers people together. This last year, we took a couple of trips to Honduras. These are some strangers cooking in the literal middle of their home in over an open fire. It was about 90 degrees this day, and in an enclosure, these ladies were cooking lunch for total strangers. 
I remember this meal. I remember not just how it tasted, but the significance of total strangers making other strangers a meal over an open fire in the middle of the summer. It was quite remarkable. So all around the world, food is gathering people. Food matters and meals matter. We know that throughout the Gospel of Luke, we've heard this idea that the Son of Man came. Over and over and over, exactly three times, the Gospel of Luke starts a phrase like this, the Son of Man, which is Jesus, and he came this way. Do you remember what they are? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Do you remember this phrase? It's, it's familiar to us. We also hear that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know this. This is how Jesus came for us to seek and to save and not to be served, but to serve. But there's a third one that would catch us all off guard. The third time is this idea that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Here, Dr. Luke is strategic in telling us not just why he came to seek and to save, but how he came. The actual footprints of Jesus is that he came eating and drinking. One theologian tells us that in the Gospel of Luke, as we just travel through Jesus' very footsteps himself, Jesus is either going to a meal He is at a meal or he's leaving a meal. And then he goes on to say he is the consummate party animal. (gasps) This is how, is this how you see Jesus? That he is at a party or he hosts a party or he's gathering food and drink, but also people to tell people about himself and the kingdom that is to come. One great critique after he came eating and drinking in chapter 7 is this critique that he is both a glutton and a drunkard. Meaning there's excess food in his life. There's excess drink in his life. But he's also a friend of sinners. There's excess friends in his life. Excess, excess, excess. And no rabbi, no son of man would ever do that. I wonder how you would describe Jesus Christ to your friends. Here, Luke wants us to know that this is how he wants to be told. These are acted out parables. These are real life action stories because Jesus didn't want to just teach about the kingdom. He wanted to show us what the kingdom was all about. So here we are in chapter 5 and we're introduced to a guy named... Levi, and he is a tax collector, right? This is, this is where we are. If you are going to get a job done well, who do you call? You call an expert, someone who knows what they're doing. If your car is broken, like all of my cars are always broken, you need a good what? A mechanic. Good. All right. This is good class. Great job. Good job, right? All right, if you need something drawn up for you because you're about to build something, you need an architect or something like that, right? If you want a good job done, you get an expert. So where does Jesus go to get his 12 disciples or his 12 apostles? He goes to the synagogues, right? That's where he goes to get his people. He goes straight to Jerusalem. He goes into the temple and he says, those guys, the smart ones, The one's decorated. That's the one we we want. 
the ones that have the fancy titles, the ones that have the letters after their names, the one with great resumes, right? Those are the people that Jesus calls to be his disciples, right? Here, this is Luke chapter 5. Five short chapters in. We only know of now five disciples who Jesus has looked at them and said, follow me. Four fishermen and a tax collector. These are not just people who are unequipped. These are people that are on the outskirts of society, that are instantly, just a few few chapters into this gospel, they are now on the insiders of all things. Five of 12. Here we have people on the outside moving in. So who are these tax collectors? These tax collectors... They're simply legal, what I'm calling legal thieves. Here we stumble upon a guy named Levi. He's operating, he's behind a tax booth. Tax collectors are professional for sure, right? But they're subcontractors for the Roman government. This is lucrative work. You want to be a tax collector. Why? It's because the, the Roman government has given you authority to go and tax whoever you want to. If you want a road tax, go ahead and do it. If you want a toll tax, go ahead and do it. Do you want to toll income? That's fine. Over and over and over, as a tax collector, you can go into people's lives and you can tax them and then you can skim off the top. So whether it's land or roads or fish or boats or whatever, you can tax the heck out of anybody and then you can skim off the top. Have you ever heard the phrase, filthy rich. That means you're just beyond rich. But there's an admirable way of making money, right? There's a good and moral way in which you are able to make a profit. However, there's a phrase, filthy rich, in which you are amoral in your gathering of resources. This is Levi. This is our tax collector. It's legal, sure. Accepted, yeah but he's almost a thief. Levi is not just thieving. He's not just stealing and skimming off the top. He's also a traitor. You see, it's not just the Roman government that's doing all the bullying. They're actually going into Judea and they're getting people who are fully Jewish to enact these taxes. His name is Levi. Do you know who Levi is? You know, have you heard of Aaron and Aaron's sons and these guys who are supposed to be at the temple? This guy is supposed to be the most religious of all religious. He's not just a thief, he's a traitor. He's fully Jewish and now he's doing the exercising of the uh, the Roman government. He is truly a traitor. And yet, this is who Jesus walks up to. This is who Jesus calls by name. And that's because what Jesus came to do is to seek and to save. And who does he save? He saves sinners. That's what he does. He walks into people who are far from him, who do not have their stuff put together, and they say, call them by name, and they make, and he makes them theirs. 
if God can save someone like Levi, surely he can save someone like me. Maybe you are in here this morning and you feel like you have to put your stuff together or align yourself or clean yourself up before God would ever look to you. If you read just the simple words of Luke chapter 5, you will see something very, very different. You see a guy doing his atrocious job and flaunting it publicly. And that's the person that Jesus walks up to. Because there's no one who is unsavable. God saves sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say it like this, thank God that my salvation does not depend on my frail hold on him, but his mighty grasp on me. Why? It's because God is doing the saving. He is the one who is walking up to Levi and telling him, by the way, you're going to follow me. Your life is about to change. And so how does God do this? First and foremost, that Jesus He's the one who is choosing Levi in this scenario. This is what he does. He walks up to Levi and he calls him. He says, this is what I'm going to do. I chose you, Levi. This is Jesus enacting his leverage on him. Later in uh, John chapter 15, he would say, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Guess who's in the crowd? Levi. And he raises up his hand. He was like, yeah, I was there that day. I had no business being chosen, had no business following after him. You wouldn't have no idea what I was planning for the rest of my day. And all of this trajectory of Levi's life, somehow, when Jesus walks in, he says, nope, your life is going to be different. Levi's life changed on a dime. So not only does Jesus do the choosing, but like he's calling Levi to follow him. And so in the way that he spent all of his time and all of his energy and all of his imagination to exact taxes on other people, right? To take what is not his, he now is following someone totally different. And it's not a scheme to make money, but now it's a person who's seen him seen him on his worst day doing terrible things and still chose him and called him to follow him. The end of our passage uses this word of repentance. Why? It's because this is what Levi did. He left the tax booth and he followed after Jesus because it's a different type of of call in his life. You're doing things as a dead person and Jesus makes you alive. You are doing things that are unsatisfactory and you're now following after him. This is a change of total direction. So not only that, but Levi's life was literally changed forever. Literally changed from that day and for the rest of his life. Levi would have his name changed later on, to Matthew. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. This one of these disciples of Jesus penned the first gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew would go on and be nicknamed the, the evangel- uh, Matthew the Evangelist. He always, always had a soft heart a soft place in his heart for the Jewish nation. History tells us that he was martyred for Jesus, meaning he was killed for the sake of Jesus. 
Some historians say that he was killed by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish of all Jewish people. This day, Levi's life changed, but his entire life changed forever. His, this life is more than just making money. This life is more than just exercising authority. This life is more than being a big deal or making a name for yourself. For Levi, his life changed forever on this day. So then you move on and you see, you actually get down into the feast itself and it really is amazing. And so you have this idea called table fellowship. Table fellowship is that those people who, who share your table, you've allowed to get close to you. Some uh, passages say that you are reclining at table, meaning you are very comfortable with one, one another. And so if you don't understand table fellowship, you may not see the significance in this idea. Some people say that this is reciprocity. Reciprocity is simply like as you have been given something, you feel so overwhelmed or overjoyed that you want to do something back for him. And so in Jesus' call to Levi, Levi then wants to do something for Jesus. And so he throws a great feast. And so this idea here is that this table fellowship is a shared meal. But it's more than just a shared meal because it's a shared life. Like a meal and life go together. It's not just consumption of calories. This is something significant because it's at least able to be seen out in public because other people can criticize whatever is going on here. So here's the analogy. If someone takes a loaf of bread out of an oven... You have something wonderful. It smells great. It looks great. It's toasted. It's wonderful. It's on a pan and it's set there right on the kitchen island. And everybody's staring at it. It's too hot to eat right now, right? Someone just says, do we have any butter? Like at least can we just crack this thing open, dump, you know, some, some, something in the middle of it, let it like melt or something. So we're all just kind of staring at the loaf of bread. At some point, you know, whoever cooked it was like, I think we're ready. And everybody's like, yeah, we're ready. We're ready con to consume this thing. And so whether we cut it in slices or we're tearing little bits by little bits, it doesn't matter. What happens is that you and I, we're now consuming this one loaf of bread made by our host. And you're enjoying it and I'm enjoying it. It smells great. It tastes great. It's made in the South, so lots of butter, right? A lot of fat. It's wonderful. It's great. It's good. But what happens after all of that loaf is consumed? What was once one and whole has been split apart and shared all over the room. And so that literally all of us are partakers in the thing that was once together. It's now separated and given out and we are now sharing that very thing. So that's the picture of table fellowship is that this wholeness together, that as you share a meal, you're actually endorsing that person into your life. You're actually sharing their livelihood with you. And here we have a Jewish rabbi in a crowd like this. Table fellowship matters. Redstone Church is celebrating our 10-year anniversary this fall. 
So all year we're just talking about our 10-year anniversary. I can't believe we made it this long. It's great. It's wonderful. We're going to throw a big party in the fall. It's, it's going to be great. We read all the books 10 years ago. We read all the church planting manuals and what to do, all the evangelism techniques and those types of things. But ultimately, we came down to this one phrase, and we call it big table. It was very simple. Someone cook or maybe a couple of people cook. We all gather around food, and we shared life. And we do it over and over and over. Before long, as you share a meal and you share a life, Romans 12 comes out and begin to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. You then start seeing people who are far from Jesus become attracted to people who love one another, and, and, and it continues on and on and on it goes. Around a table, you see community. Around a table, you also see mission. And it happens on and on and on. Ten years later, it still looks this way. Last Saturday, at Breakfast Club, a family in our congregation on a Saturday morning with either five or ten pounds of bacon, I'm not real sure, invited a bunch of teenagers to their house for breakfast. This is the threshold of their door. They said almost 20 kids showed up. They stayed for breakfast, lunch, and were finally forced to go home around two or three in the afternoon. Ten years later, the big table continues to get larger and bigger and more significant. Meals matter. Food matters. Because around the table fellowship is this idea that mission and community really can happen. So let's use this as not just an example, right? But to inspire all of us that you too can gather people far from Jesus and far from community and welcome them at your table. Jesus is strategically doing this though. He is, he knows what is going on. He is strategically choosing tableship with outsiders. This is what he wants to do. This is not by accident. All throughout the gospel of Luke, Luke is a Gentile. And so we see time after time, person after person, people who should not be in the room, in the room. People who should not be around the table in and around the table. People who should not be getting Jesus' attention, getting his attention. Do you notice the phrase here? And there was a large company of people. We don't know how big this banquet hall was, but we know a great company of tax collectors gathered here for this. This is what is happening. And where do you find Jesus? Reclining at table, sitting at table. And this is scandalous. You and I have read this story over and over, so maybe we don't see it as scandalous. But reclining together means closeness of posture and proximity. This is, there's probably couches involved. This is a Roman symposium meal. To welcome yourself or to be there in that room would be both immoral and unethical behavior. And this is a rabbi. An anthropologist, her name is Mary Douglas, says that these meals represent boundary markers. I think that's interesting. 
that these meals are strategic boundary markers, meaning you know who's in and you know who's out. You know what's your land and you know what's trespassing. But the religious leaders, they were livid. They could not believe Jesus would do something this scandalous. You were putting a stain on our faith. You were leading people astray. They'd forgotten that in Isaiah 25, there is a picture of a gr- the great banquet in which every tribe, tongue, and nation were welcomed to this table. To the Pharisees being sequestered, being isolated, being insular, that was the standard of religion. Jesus comes and literally breaks the glass ceiling and said, no, I'm going to put my money on Isaiah 25 that says all people are welcomed here. And so it were the Pharisees. These Pharisees are the food police. Somehow, some way, they had all the answers for all the things, what you could do and what you couldn't do. And over and over and over, they were looking at Jesus and like, you can't do that. And how often does it have to do with food? And that's because the Pharisees, they had, they had um, the standard for what was right and what was wrong. In their minds, there were two people groups, the righteous and the sinner, the clean and the unclean. And they were the standard bearers for those types of things. If you were a tax collector, if you were a herdsman, if you were, or if you were uh, from Samaria, in some cases women, they would tell you who was clean and who was unclean. They would tell you who was righteous and who was sinners. And by all practical purposes, everyone in that banquet hall, they were unclean. They're asking the disciples and they're asking Jesus, why in the world would he ever eat with them? The righteous and the sinners. To the Pharisees, they used their homes like small temples. And so in the same way that the priests would do everything to keep everything right, utensils right, they would, that's how they would conduct their lives. And so to look at this party, this great feast, was a mockery to Judaism. And an affront to all things that God would ever do. You see, in their mind, Jesus was guilty by association. Those people were making him unclean. They, because of what they did and how they went about their life, they were able to rub off on Jesus and actually make him unclean. Well, the story of the gospel is exactly opposite. It's not the sinful world who makes Jesus defiled. It's Jesus' holiness that then rubs off on us and makes us clean. And that's why he's walking into feast after feast and into people's lives over and over to say, I have come to do something new. In this chapter alone, he's gone up to people he wasn't supposed to, touched them, healed them in order to make them there. So finally we get to Jesus and Jesus calls himself, he calls himself the good doctor. In this parable we see that this is, this, this phrase here in 31 and 32, this is the focal point of the passage. 
we hear from Luke exactly why Jesus has come. We see the reason why Jesus has come, that the kingdom is for flagrant sinners, that Jesus' role is to welcome people who are on the outside and to bring them in. God is going to dinner and lunch and breakfast. He's spending his hours with sinners and people who are far from him. The Pharisees believed that these sinners could contaminate Jesus, but that is not true at all. Instead, he impacted the world and changed us forever. Jesus gives us now the most extraordinary mission statement of all. He tells us that I've come. Jesus answered them, to those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this most extraordinary mission statement has to do with practical need. How many of you have been sick in this last year? How many of you, right, in need of healing or physical help, went to a doctor for help? Now, the opposite is also true. How many healthy people voluntarily go to get a physical, right? They're like, you just, you just don't lean that way. The sicker you are, the more medical help you need. And this is what Jesus is saying. I have come to save sinners. I'm coming to those who have need for help. If you're messed up this morning, if you're broken this morning, if you are a blatant sinner this morning, Jesus comes and meets you where you are at. He does not wait for you to clean up yourself to put yourself together, he actually shows up at a tax booth for you. His patients are sick and they raise their hand and say, I need help. And that's the story of the kingdom of God. All of you in here who are following after Jesus, at some point in your life, you raised your hand or in your heart and you said, I need help. I am sick. Last week at 12 o'clock in the morning, our entire bedroom was like lit up. It looked like a disco ball. We're like, what is that? It was flashing red lights. Red light, white light, red light, white light. What is that? And so we looked out the window and there was a fire truck and an ambulance. My neighbor had some kind of emergency in the middle of the night. And what did they do? They called 911. And when 911 picked up, they said, 911, what is your emergency? And they simply said, I need help. Can you send somebody now? That's the story of the gospel. It's for you and I to not be a Pharisee. For us not to be the standard bearers of what is acceptable or not, but instead to find ourselves on the side of complete need and complete sickness. That's what Romans would tell us, that there's no one righteous, no, not one. Ephesians 2 would tell us that there's a wall of hostility that is in front of us, that we're not just not alive, but we are dead spiritually and we're in need of help. And over and over and over again, this is the gospel message that we need a doctor. 
And so we need to realize that contact with impurity does not make, does not follow Jesus. It's his holiness that is contagious. And that's the gospel message. And that's why it was a great feast because it was contagious. More people were invited around the table and over and over again. So last week, I gave you an assignment. I don't know if you remembered it, but I actually put it in print for you to to take home, and it looked like this. And we simply asked, like, who's around you? So you are symbolically, you're in the middle. You don't have to do this as, as an individual. You could do this as a family. If you really want to stretch it, you can do this as a community group. We don't care. We just want to find you kind of in the middle with some empty spaces around you and for you to ask some questions like, who, are, who is around you? Who are some people in your life right now in your current context that is far from Jesus, who are far from community? And for you, for the next year to continue to think and to press in to ask this really strong question. Is there anybody who's far from Jesus, far from community in my life right now and to write them down by name, to begin to pray for them? But we're gonna get to take a step farther this night because of Levi. Because of this exchange in the great feast, we're gonna, we're gonna, charge, we're gonna call it this. One mil in March. We would like for you to take somebody on this list and potentially have one meal in March with someone who's far from Jesus or far from community and just start a conversation. The Pharisees believed that the height of religion was to make ourselves sequestered, to actually get farther away from the world. Jesus bursts that bubble and walks right into a party and he says, these are my people because the new kingdom is coming. Today, we also have a table that we get to come to. The way that we respond to the the text each and every week is that we take of the Lord's supper or of the Lord's table. There's no altar at Redstone Church. It's not that we're opposed to them, but we believe that it's not just one or two people that need to respond, that all people need to respond. If you're following Jesus this morning, we would encourage you to respond by going to the table where you see a loaf of bread symbolically broken for you and for you to partake of the meal of Jesus and to do so with gladness in your heart You're not sequestered this morning. You're not isolated this morning. You're not pushed away this morning or put behind a curtain or in a dark room. Instead, the lights are on, the party is set, the table is set, and you are welcome to the table. That is walking with Jesus. But there may be some in here this morning that are not walking with Jesus, who are not following after him. We would encourage you to read Luke chapter 5, and the story of Levi, and to say, what would it take for me to start a relationship with Jesus this morning? And then have a conversation with a friend or a community group. Come up after service and talk to me, because we want you to follow Jesus, because it'll change your life in the same way that it changed Levi's. And so this morning, as we come to the table, let me read Isaiah 25. For us, this is not just the table of remembrance this morning, but also the great feast that God has in preparing for us. This is Isaiah 25, 
to prepare us for the Lord's table. On the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain a covering that is cast over all people, the veil that spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. This is what he is going to do for us one day. And this is what we can step into this morning. So I'd encourage you to stand to your feet. To ask some hard questions. Do I follow Jesus? And if that answer is yes, just know that the table of remembrance is for you. Go and celebrate that he has welcomed you this morning.